This is a Federal News Network podcast. Guns of all sizes, someday steel-cutting lasers and hypersonic launchers, none of it gets mounted on a Navy ship until it's been tested and vetted by the Naval Surface Warfare Center Dahlgren Division. Recently, I traveled to King George County, Virginia, home of the Dahlgren Division, to see what's going on to keep the Navy effective and lethal. In this first of a series of interviews we'll be airing this week, I spoke with the division's commander, Captain Casey Plew. So the history of the organization starts off with Admiral John Dahlgren himself working problems in the Navy Yard for the Navy. So cannons were blowing up on ships and killing sailors. And if it wasn't killing the sailor, the cannonball was going out the ship and was hitting the ship and not destroying the ship or just completely missing the ship. So the entire history of our organization is all about the safe and efficient and effectiveness of our weapon systems. And so Admiral Dahlgren, after being at sea, decided I need to go to the Bureau of Ordnance and go fix this and started working on developing a better cannon. And so the breach wouldn't blow out the back end and kill our sailors. And so he was up at the Navy Yard working that in the 1850s. Uh, all the way up through the Civil War. Civil War, he gets an assignment to go down and be the admiral in charge. I believe it was Charleston, the blockade in Charleston. Did that for a few years and then came back and was doing the development and testing in the Navy Yard, again, for weapon systems to ensure they're safe, efficient, and effective. And so we did that until uh, post-Civil War, right? Civil War happens, and folks that used to live out in the country moved into the city for safety. And so testing cannons at the Navy Yard in Washington, D.C., across the Anacostia River, uh, kind of a bad idea. <laughs> people people had moved in, right? So people have moved in, kind of a bad idea. So they moved down to Indian Head, Maryland, and they were down in Indian Head shooting across the Potomac for a while. And I believe as the story goes, that lasted for about 20, 30 years until they landed an artillery shell into the backyard of a house and decided we're still too close. I think there was also an off-nominal shot, so nominal being where I wanted to shoot it, an off-nominal shot that landed a thousand yards or so off the uh, starboard beam of the uh, presidential yacht. Again, still too close to land and civilization. So we came on down here to Dahlgren in 1918 to uh, start testing artillery. If you look at the charts, there's about 50 miles down to the Chesapeake of a range that we can shoot down every day. That's the uh, lower range. The middle range is where we shoot today. We normally about five to eight miles down the Potomac will shoot each day. That's about as far as we go. But we have all the way down to the lower end of uh, to the Chesapeake, a little bit up north of the bridge as well, another range north of the bridge. But in general... Every day, we shoot five to eight miles down the river testing. We have a really good working relationship with the community. A lot of our folks that work the range, those that that run the range boats, those that are in our range operations center, all former local fishermen of some sort. And so while we're testing, we're in really good communication up and down the river so they can go and do their kayaking. We'll shut the range down for a bit. During crab season, a really good working relationship, we'll shut down testing. They'll go get their crab pots, and we'll restart the testing. A really good relationship, understanding that, that while we have to do testing, they've, they've got to feed their families. And somewhere downrange then, under the water, is there a big pile of old shells and, and uh, ordnance? Uh, in general, pile of shells and ordnance, I wouldn't say there's a big pile. So in general, uh, when we used to shoot the large ordnance, we'd go pick them up and pull them out. It's been a while since we've had any issue, I, I believe, with any artillery round being found in the water. We've done a really good job of the year with our environmental folks, ensuring the health of the river. Uh, there are the oyster fields, there's the crabbing. We, we do a really good job working with our local folks to ensure the environmental piece of what we do is healthy and sound. And if you would, just give us an idea of where the 
Dahlgren operation fits in with the rest of the Naval Surface Warfare Center and with naval research and with the Navy. Where are you in the whole pantheon of organizations? We work for the Naval Sea Systems Command. I work for Admiral Byrne, who is the commander of the undersea and the surface warfare centers. So there's 10 of us, two undersea and eight surface warfare centers. And so where we fit in is we are the research and development organization for naval surface warfare centers. And I say research and development, we are very clearly focused on the fact that our mission, again, from the beginnings with John Dahlgren himself, from the very beginning, is the research and development of those weapon systems. And we take that, again, very seriously, knowing that there are folks that support the fleet today. Uh, the Surface Warfare Center Point Wayne Amy does the in-service engineering, supports the fleet today. Uh, but we are clearly focused on the future Navy and the Navy after next. And if we don't focus in on that and we kind of get stuck in supporting today's Navy, while we do support them, if there are issues that the in-service folks cannot fix, we'll support them. But again, we clearly focused on the future Navy and the Navy after next. Today we have laser systems that are going on ships. There's seven prototypes and eighth is paid for. But we have prototypes of laser systems that 20 years ago, no one was going to put lasers on a ship. We here in Dahlgren thought, what can we do with the Navy laser weapon system? Can we put it on a ship? We started working through the science, the technologies, the research and development, all the way up to that prototype to see can we put it on a ship and make it an effective weapon system. So that's an example of how we look to the future of the Navy. What can we do? How can we bring that technology to the fleet? And we do that all the way up to a prototype. And then once we do a prototype, we'll send that technology, that data package, out to industry and say, we need this to be done at rate for our Navy. Here's all the data. Here's how we did it. Go do it again at rate. We need to make it more effective and efficient. And then we step back and we go look at the next great thing. Because you have to have some idea of what is possible from industry. In other words, if you want a laser that could sink a battleship powered by a penlight battery, well, that's not capable and how do you find out what you think industry is capable of that maps to a naval requirement? So we collaborate. We've got really within who we are, we recognize that we're a research and development organization. Number two, that we have to focus in on rigor, rigor being the strict adherence to process and procedure, that if we can't repeat it, it's of no value. Otherwise, it just becomes flubber. It's something that you can't reproduce again, but we need to be able to reproduce it. We need to be able to send it out to industry. And we also focus in on our collaboration. We have to understand what industry is doing. We have to understand what's out there in academia. And it's just not only here within uh, the United States, but also internationally. Uh, we work very closely with uh, the folks like the UK, the Norwegians, the Dutch, those sort of uh, NATO partners to understand what they're working on as well. And it's through that collaboration that we understand what they're working on for the future. We also recognize that we have a lot of really smart, talented people here, but we may not have all of them. And recognizing that with their help, we'll be able to get to those. We're in the threat business, that if we don't understand what the threats are, so we work with the Office of Naval Intelligence very closely to understand the threat. And if we're not tied closely with those folks to understand the future threats, we can't work through the other collaborative pieces to get after that. It, just Absolutely. give us a sense of the workforce makeup at Dahlgren, civilian versus uniform, and there's a lot of contractors. Every one of them has a building next door. We're an organization. I think our number is we're just shy of 5,000, 5,000 folks, government people that work here, and uh, another 4,000 contractors of some sort. So about 9,000 total workforce, again, working collaboratively on those future weapon systems. A lot of PhDs. We have uh, just under 200 PhDs here 
another couple thousand with master's degrees, 80% of our workforce is degreed. And so very technical workforce, very educated workforce. And it's not just within the technical community as well. A very strong comptroller, very strong contract shop, very strong facilities. We have one of the best teams as far as, uh, I'll call it the business portion of what we do, because we recognize that as good as our technical people are, if you do not have a modern IT infrastructure, if you do not have top-rate facilities, if you cannot put a contract in place, if you cannot move money through the comptroller, none of that technical business means anything. If you do not have those business people to support the technical, you just can't get the job done. And that's about 20%, maybe 15% of our workforce is on the non-technical side, but just as critical, just as critical to the organization. I wanted to ask you about some specific initiatives here. One is the software engineering revolution, and you don't see the word revolution very much in a government context. So what is that all about? As I like to talk about it, it's uh, C.N.O. Richardson talked about compile the combat in 24, C2, C24. Uh, what that really was is that as the enemy is going to do things that we know that we're not going to show everything that we do. When we go to war, the enemy is going to do something that we see, that we sense in some fashion. What they do that's new, that we didn't expect, needs to get through those sensors, through the ship, through the celestial, through the terrestrial network, needs to be analyzed, sent back here to this organization – we need to be able to make changes in the software because the physics are going to be what the physics are. The kinematics of that, the missile's not going to fly any faster than it will. The radar won't see any farther than it will. The physics are going to be what we're fighting with today. What we'll be able to change is the software and how we use that physics, that problem, uh, to our advantage within the software. Again, we need to sense all that, get it through the network, analyze it, make the changes within the software, do the test, the certification, make sure it's safe. Uh, send all those changes back through that network onto that ship so we then can go after the enemy. The only way we can do that is understand the software and how that's put together. About one-fifth of the people that work here are software developers. We own the fire control and the weapons control development on things like the gun weapon systems, on submarine-launched ballistic missiles. We understand how that software is developed. And again, we recognize that if we want to get after that future problem quickly – that we've got to be able to enable that with software development. We're very heavy into things like the software factory, using agile processes as opposed to old-style waterfall processes for development. Again, heavily developed in that software, understanding that that's going to be how we can quickly affect that future. As an aside, that means you probably have to interoperate with other elements of the Navy, such as the people developing the canes, say the, the shipboard networks and so forth. That is true. That is true. Kane's uh, uh, not really in my wheelhouse. I did spend some time over at, uh, at Spay War Pacific, now NIWIC Pacific, uh, the Consolidated Float Network Enterprise System, I believe is what it stands for. It's been a while. I worked there 10 years ago, so it's been a while. But we do work closely with those folks. Again, uh, when you get into the lines between the weapon system and the network, both the celestial, terrestrial, the shipboard, and then the external networks, uh, the lines between them are, are becoming uh, less clear. And so we do work closely with our brethren at NIWIC Pacific, NIWIC Lant on our weapon systems and our sensor systems and bringing all that data together. Absolutely. And digital engineering, I'm afraid to say the Air Force has gotten a lot of credit for that, but apparently from looking at the initiatives here at Dahlgren, that's a big part of the Navy's future also. And just also if you would distinguish it from plain old CAD. Uh, From plain old CAD. You've got to recognize that we have systems on ships that go all the way back to the 70s, very much a paper-driven, red-line drawings, 
really when you get after digital engineering, to understand the effect of the change that you've made within the weapon system, within the combat system, not only from a tactical how the system is going to perform, but all the way to the strategic. If you don't start in a digital world with digital model and understand the the impact of what you're producing, again, across all levels from the tactical to strategic, if you don't digitally work through that problem set, you're not going to understand the impact. And the only time you'll really see the impact is one, either at war or two, when you finally put it on a ship. That process is too slow. And so really digital engineering is, is about doing those engineering processes in a digital environment to be able to see through modeling and simulation the effects of the change before you put it on the ship. And with a CAD system, the net result of that would be a piece of paper that you'd have to go through and develop something and then put it on the ship and see if it worked. So CAD is just a component in the digital engineering chain then maybe? It it is. I don't know that the result of a CAD drawing would be not really in a, uh, a piece of paper anymore. It would be in a model. Absolutely be in a model. And I couldn't let you go without talking about about hypersonics. hypersonics. So hypersonics is a fascinating topic. Hypersonics don't become a noun, but it's really an adjective, right? It just means something that goes faster than Mach 5, so five times the speed of sound. And we have weapons currently that do that. Generally, those weapon systems are um, exo-atmospheric, right? Things that are not within our what I call air breathing, right, below the atmosphere, where we live in the endo-atmospheric, right? So those atmospheric weapon systems generally go faster than Mach 5. Really with hypersonic weapons, what you're talking about is air-breathing weapons, those that are in the air that are highly maneuverable and go faster than Mach 5. And so that problem set both in the control of the weapon system and also the defense against those incoming threats, it's just a different problem set, one we haven't worked on. I'm not personally worried about the technical portions of it because it's, uh, it's just a different problem set. um, You've got a pretty interesting next assignment. I was told uh, last week I'll be heading to work for uh, Admiral Selby at the Office of Naval Research to help him work Naval X. And Naval X is being the the Navy's, uh, uh, I don't want to say innovation cell, we have innovation cells everywhere, but how do we bring tech bridges together? The tech bridge being the industry, small business out in town with the warfighter, understand their problems and help get that innovative ideas into the Navy and transition into effective weapon systems. Captain Casey Plew, who last week was commander of the Naval Surface Warfare Center Dahlgren Division, now on a new assignment with the Office of Naval Research. There's more to the interview, hear it in its entirety, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. 
Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. 
And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.